Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. March 2nd, 2023, the So It Was a Lab Leak edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I am joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. And by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. Hello. This week on the GabFest, will the Supreme Court strike down Biden's student loan forgiveness program? And should they strike it down? Then the Department of Energy concludes that the pandemic was caused by a lab leak in Wuhan. How should that shape U.S. science policy and U.S.-China relations? Then English departments and other humanities departments are in big trouble. What is the risk to society if fewer people study the humanities? We'll talk to a very special guest, my brother, John Plotz, a professor of English. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hello again to our new friend, the Major Questions Doctrine. Supreme Court. <laughs> Supreme Court. Ap- it is not our friend, actually. Appears poised to invalidate the Biden administration's proposal to cancel $400 billion worth of student debt. The administration used a provision of a an act passed in response to 9-11, the HEROES Act, along with emergency powers granted during the COVID emergency to kind of try to sidestep, shuffle around Congress not acting in this way, but the administration tried to clear the debts for millions of student borrowers. It is a fascinating case that was argued at the Supreme Court this week. Uh, and there are big questions, including whether anyone had the right to sue to overturn the policy and whether the administration had the right to take such sweeping action. So, Emily, like, set us up with the basics of the case or the cases and who's suing. There are big questions about the major questions. <laughs> yeah, let's start with who's suing, because when the Supreme Court or any court decides a case, you're supposed to start with this initial question of whether anyone has standing to sue. Do you have a party that fits that criteria? There are two lawsuits. In one of the lawsuits, there are individuals suing. They are probably going to get kicked out of court, I think. Their claims, the many justices seemed skeptical of whether they had standing. And so I'm going to focus on the students who are not having their loans forgiven for the most part. Thank you. They say it's not fair. Right. But if they had standing, then basically anyone would have standing to challenge the design of any government program. And the court seemed skeptical about that argument. The more plausible case are um, a bunch of states that have sued. And Missouri is the focus of the court. Their argument is they have standing because they created and controlled what's called the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, which holds and services student loans in the U.S. And Biden's loan forgiveness program, according to Nebraska, um, and I know that I just said Missouri, but it was the Nebraska Solicitor General that was doing the argument. So bear with me. The Nebraska Solicitor General said that Biden's student loan program threatens to cut the funding for this Missouri higher ed loan authority by 40 percent. 
So that's supposed to be the kind of direct injury that you need for standing, right? You're going to lose money. You're showing up to say, um, I want my money back. Please, court, redress my injury in the kind of language of standing. There's a problem, though, which is that the Missouri Higher Ed Loan Authority did not itself sue. The state of Missouri sued on its behalf. And that is not normally how standing works, that you have one entity sue on behalf of another entity. And so the liberal justices picked this up to ask a bunch of questions about why um, the Higher Ed Loan Authority hadn't sued on its own instead of relying on the state of Missouri. And that's a pretty interesting reason to just decide that there is no one withstanding in this case. The conservatives did not seem inclined to go in that direction, however. Why does that matter? I mean, I get the standing thing mattering, but who does the actual suing? Why does that matter in terms of having a good legal system? Well, I mean, this is a good question about standing in general. Why not have a really broad standing doctrine where basically like anyone can sue? I'm not arguing for that. I'm not arguing for that. I'm arguing for if it's all if they're all part of the state of Missouri or they have different ways that they represent the state of Missouri, then why aren't they essentially in the same bucket? I get why you don't want anybody to be able to do anything. So traditionally, conservatives have been skeptical of very broad standing permission. And the reason for that was this idea that you don't want to have the courts step in and solve every problem in American society, that you want the democratically elected branches of government to be able to make policy, and you don't want someone with a kind of tangential claim for having been wrong to be able to get in there and gum up the works. In particular, there's an opinion from 10 years ago from Justice Alito, where he said, in order to have standing, you have to have a future injury that is imminent. It has to be what Alito said was certainly impending. And it's hard to see how the state of Missouri has that kind of injury instead of this higher loan authority, which it created. It's just like opening up a kind of window here to have other people step in outside of what the court has previously said should be a relatively narrow lane. It's clear that if if this were, instead of giving away $400 billion, that if they were taking $400 billion from people, no one would, there would be like injuries up and down the world. Like people would be suing left and right. There would be no question. I find it, like conceptually difficult to say that we're taking an action which is which is because we're giving candy away no one can sue us as we give all this candy away and it does feel like the fact that we can't identify someone who's being hurt directly by this feels to me like a bug in the system rather than a good feature it feels like a problem like definitely the feds clearing 400 billion dollars of debt makes life worse for some people for people who work in loan servicing or Something like that. And so it, it to me, it is it is conceptually funky to say you're going to have to work really hard to find someone who can sue to overturn this because it's just giving nice stuff away. And so no one is hurt when you give nice stuff away. Yeah, I totally hear you. And, you know, if you are a liberal listening to this and you're just thinking of this in terms of, well, I want, you know, this these student loads canceled, you might think about a kind of parallel here, which is Trump's effort to divert military funds to pay for the border wall, right? Like who is supposed to sue over that? Because that's also about giving money away. And that's one reason why you might want to have a coherent theory of standing that is separate from your outcome desires. Although maybe you won't because in the end, most people. Right. And the Supreme Court didn't ever get to that case, right? Other courts said, other courts ruled on it and said he can't do this, but it never got to the Supreme Court. And by the time Biden overturned the policy before the Supreme Court ruled on it. Right. So now we're in this in this land of student loan cancellation debt having this conversation. 
In my view, David, the conceptual distinction or lack of distinction you're talking about makes total sense. It bothers me, however, in my kind of lawyer hat guys, that Missouri sued on behalf of this other entity when Justice Alito said, no, you can't do that. Because that just seems like then you have a court that's kind of contradicting itself for because they want to hear this case um, and inflict more major questions doctrines upon us. I think that it makes sense to be to have consistent rules about standing and they can be broader or narrower in different kinds of democracies. Um, and the court can have broader or narrower rules at different points in its own trajectory. But I think they need to be consistent. And I think it matters this. I know it sounds kind of like who cares, but I think if there's a loan authority in a state that can make an argument that its budget is affected by canceling all the student debt, that entity should sue. Also, you can't throw your standards for standing out the window on a case where you're talking about, at least in one part of it, whether the action taken by the White House, by the president, was done in the proper manner according to the standards of what the executive branch can do and what the the legislative branch can do. I mean, this is in part a debate about doing things the right way. And I want to get to that question of uh, major doctrine, major questions doctrine. Emily, do you um, do you think this is a bad fit for those who support the major questions doctrine? Because first of all, you can re-explain that to, to those who are listening. But oh, also, thank you. I can. Well, what there's a treat. A, there's a question of whether, but what Biden did it runs afoul of the actual Heroes Act. If if he's in other words misreading or overreaching with respect to the specific legislation, and then there seems to me to be a secondary question, or at least there is in my mind, which is anytime the executive branch does anything that's just super big that isn't absolutely declared in the legislative language, that that's too much power for the executive to take, and it's really a congressional question. And so that's more of a general concept of major questions, and the other is narrowly defined with respect to this specific piece of legislation. Which do you think? is at issue here, although I know, of course, they're combined. They're both at issue. It's crazy. I can't even believe it. Sorry, Emily. I know you're no, supposed to please. answer this question. Like, I 100% support Biden's goal of forgiving student debt. We have a student debt crisis in this country. Congress absolutely should do something. People are suffering. It's terrible. But I am genuinely offended reading these laws and reading what was intended with these laws. The idea that these laws are are... are actually were meant to do something like this and that it's no problem for the Biden administration to take an absolutely gargantuan uh, amount of money to, to, to reward people with an absolutely gargantuan amount of money using this extremely bogus, tenuous argument. Like it, it it's offensive. It's offensive. And they should lose the case because it's absurd that you should be allowed to use that and circumvent Clearly, if Congress had wanted to do this, they could have expressed it so much more clearly and in any – they could have used so much other language to express it. They didn't express it. Congress doesn't want to do it. And to make a $400 billion statement in this regard seems crazy to me. Can we put this text of the statute on the table here for our listeners? What the HEROES Act actually says is it grants authority to the Secretary of Education to respond to a national emergency by waiving or modifying – Anything in the statute or regulations that governs the student loan programs. So that's what we're talking about. It has to be emergency relief um, and has to be waiving or modifying. So 
And then there's another part of the statute that talks about putting people into as good a financial position as they were before the emergency, which is muddied by all the other relief that people have received um, in the wake or because of COVID. Also, there are two ways in which this is offensive. Wave and modify does not seem to me to suggest, oh, we're going to cancel a ton of this. Number one. I don't know. Wave seems. (laughs) That's modifying it. All right. Yes. Number two, the emergency part of it. Like the emergency part of it is just like we took advantage of the fact that there's a COVID emergency. We did it really late. The people, I think at the, by the time they did it, there people did not feel there was a COVID emergency going on. And it seems to me like that is a such a stretch to say, oh, it's be- because of this emergency that we're going to do it. They, they didn't do it because of the emergency. They did it because it was politically expedient and they couldn't do it another way. And also the emergency is over now or it's about to be. And this is going to continue going forward, right? Certainly as declared by the president whose uh, initiative this is. Um, So it seems to me that the uh, group here has decided that, in fact, it's the specifics of this case that are bonkers and mismatched. And it's not really a major questions doctrine. Well, the idea of the major questions doctrine, to give it its due, lines up with David's point, because the idea is that if if the executive branch, the agency is the president, are going to do some big thing, Congress needs to be super, super clear about granting the authority to do that. And so I think what David is saying is that this is a kind of distorted, stretched out reading of the statute that was really designed for another purpose. And so it would fail the test of the major questions doctrine, a very recent creation of this conservative Supreme Court that is itself quite malleable. I don't even know what the major questions doctrine, it fails the smell test of like basic common sense of like, how should politics work? I don't think that's true. I think you can have, I mean, this is why I said these two things are mixed. I think you can say sort of when the executive branch does something massive and large because you know one of the basic principles of the whole organization of government was a shared power system that when they do something massive and large that they are they're do they're taking more power and you should be skeptical of that the problem is it's not of course equally um arranged i mean every war action would be should be a major questions doctrine issue and basically presidents should not be allowed to do all the war making they do because uh because they're stealing power from Congress. So, well, yeah, that's true. They violate the War Powers yeah. Act. We have other statutes that we don't enforce in that domain, but like, yes, Congress under the Constitution has the power of to make war and the president has encroached on it. So, that is a parallel consideration. I cannot resist saying one more thing, which is that I am very skeptical of the major questions doctrine because it seems endlessly subjective to me. What's big? What's important? What's of this? Course. What's that? I of don't course. like any of that. I do think that, David, there is a very textualist argument that you were basically making earlier that this doesn't pass the smell test. I myself think waving seems pretty broad. But this question of what's an emergency? Was Biden really acting to address an emergency? Um, what about prospectively when people receive um, loan relief after the emergency's over? Like those things seem like very well, not very, but like a potentially clear textualist way to address this. And some of the conservative justices are just as skeptical about the applicability of wave and modify as you are. So they could just stick to the text of the statute and not mess around with this other far more suspect doctrine if they are so inclined. So if you were trying to kill major questions doctrine and make it look silly in front of the court and demolish it as a tenuous legal principle, this would be a bad case to do it because the facts of the underlying legislation and the stretching of it are not on your side. 
That's another way of my question. Or you could just say you don't need to go there. You can do this other thing. But, you know, the the government, the Solicitor General, um, Elizabeth Prelegar, who was making the argument, it's not in her interest to be like, well, don't go behind door number one. <laughs> but if you're a conservative justice who wants the major questions doctrine enshrined and and etched onto the Supreme Court's uh, walls, don't you love this case? Yes. Because it's it's like, a, obviously, a pretty major 100%. question. 100%. Yes. dollars worth of loan relief. Right. Pulled totally. out of Biden's yes. ass. Yes, that's I the mean, distinction I was on. seeking. After Congress refused to pass the relief, right, you also have Congress not acting, which is like some kind yeah. of piece of evidence about what Congress was doing here. It's not like nobody asked Congress, do we want to cancel this student loan debt or not? They asked, and Congress was like, no thanks. Which is where the question should be asked and answered. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Congress absolutely has the statutory authority to do this. Can I make one more final point, which is between, and they also, the court's going to take up the um, the Consumer Financial Protections Bureau, which will be really interesting, too, on these same questions, like how much can the executive do, which puts us in the mind of a presidential campaign in which you're going to have lots of candidates claiming they're going to do all kinds of amazing things as president. And that will get back to your subjectivity question, Emily, which is that if you have a Republican president in a conservative court, the um, notion of major questions is going to get shrunk, one would assume. Nothing will be considered to be a major question. That's what will happen. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GapFest, other Slate podcasts, and you get uh, no ad podcasts and all kinds of other goodies. If you go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus, you can become a member today. Uh, And we're going to talk about the most riveting DC scandal in a generation, which is that Joe Biden and Jill Biden ordered the same entree at a DC restaurant last week. And President Biden might well get impeached for that. Uh, He will get impeached by the foodies for it. So we'll talk about that and whether he committed or they committed some cardinal sin by their poor restaurant ordering. Slate.com slash GapFest Plus. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The Department of Energy now believes that the COVID pandemic was the result of a lab leak from a scientific institute in Wuhan studying coronaviruses. The Energy Department conclusion was made with, quote, low confidence, however, 
It was in a classified report, so the evidence supporting its conclusion has not been revealed. But it does mean that the DOE has now joined the FBI in endorsing the lab leak theory. Other government agencies are undecided, and then there's some that are sort of skeptical. Notably, also we should note the report, none, none of the, no one has come out with a theory that this was an engineered Chinese bioweapon. It's all sort of lab leak of, of research rather than intentionality so far. John, it's pretty clear we are never going to get certifiable, put it on a pedestal, Uh, proof about COVID's origins, because China has been so secretive and deceptive about those origins. But what does it mean, do you think, that there's another major investigation by a credible agency that that found the lab leak to be the the most likely explanation. I think we should remind people that who might think, wait, the energy department, <laughs> um, they have a, they have a network of 17 laboratories and, and, um, those laboratories do advanced bio research. Um, and so, um, they have standing and expertise to make these claims. The FBI also made a claim about the lab leak theory. So if you're doing the math, um, I, th- I believe it's including the, na- the national intelligence council, Four have said they thought it was through natural transmission from an infected animal. Of course, they've not found the animal. And then now you have these two other groups that uh, say it's a lab leak. And then two, as you say, are undecided. Um, I think what this means is a uh, is a couple of things. The first is that it continues to undermine probably what's already been thoroughly undermined, which is the kind of belief in institutions and belief in knowable things. Um, I think it's perfectly possible to not be able to know what happened inside of a Chinese lab when the Chinese are blocking all access to the lab and have every reason, including for their own domestic um, concerns, to fuzzy this up and lie about it. I think that's a pretty hard thing to know. I think it's probably easier to know other things in science, and that should be a pretty easy distinction to make. But there are a lot of people who want to say this is a part of the general um, mistakes that science made. And scientists know that mistakes are a part of what they do, and you act on the best knowledge and then you iterate. But that's been completely demolished by the public conversation about science and public health, Um, sometimes with the aid of both the media and people in public health who've burned that important connection. But I think it undermines that more. Um, and I think that hurts us for the next pandemic. Um, and I, so that's, I think for me, the biggest thing, and obviously for conservatives who are, who are trying to attack kind of the left, this is another, um, you know, this is a sort of C we were right all along. Um, and that's helpful for their political ends. Yeah. This whole conversation, there's the politics in which everybody just like picks up uh, any kind of stick to like bludgeon China with and blame China and blame the Biden administration for not being tough enough on China, never mind that it was actually Donald Trump who initially gave the Chinese a big pass. I find that whole conversation really frustrating and irritating. And then there's this question of like, what should people who study viruses in a lab be doing to make sure that those viruses don't get more powerful and then escape? And do we even need to be doing this, quote, gain of function research that loads up the viruses and seems to create real risk? And actually, you don't even have to get to the gain of function part. The gain of function is where you're modifying them to make them more loaded. Even the research itself, if you're just taking viruses that are in civet populations or in in bat populations and working on them, that in itself is dangerous. Even those people who say it is very likely a lab leak, 
don't have evidence that is lab leak where it's gain of function. It could have just been lab leak of, oh, we've taken this virus that we found in a cave a thousand miles away. We've studied it in a lab in Wuhan and whoops, it got out like without having them modifying it at all. Yeah, good point. And I just wonder, maybe we need to stop doing this or do it very, very little. And I would have assumed that the reason that you study viruses in this manner is to make it easier to create vaccines. And it sounds like that is not a necessary link whatsoever. And so now I'm like really scratching my head about why we do this. And I mean, this I don't care that much about whether it was an accidental lab leak or an animal to human transfer. I don't care. I don't think we're going to settle the question. I don't understand why we have American intelligence agencies putting out flammable reports like this with a low confidence rating. Like, I just don't get that. And maybe you think that's weird. But anyway, I don't I just want better biosafety protections. (laughs) I think the point that I've seen made very well over and over again by lots of people is it kind of doesn't matter whether the lab leak happened or it didn't happen. It's like the it is clear that viruses escape from labs at a frightening regularity that certainly it's almost certainly the case that the that H1N1 there was a flu an H1N1 flu that killed 700,000 people that was a lab leak escape. Right, good and, enough for me. You know, that smallpox escapes, that polio is escape like all the time these viruses are escaping and so the amount of work that should be done on them and and the should be less and the precautions should be greater and that that should be the absolutely the focus. You guys have put your finger on, of course, the right thing. Let me um, just discuss the some of this, the politics, which seems stupid to me, which is that many supporters of Donald Trump say, see, we knew it was a lab leak all along. Okay. But as you both said, it doesn't change the way you would react. So if Donald Trump had metaphysical certainty that it was a lab leak, which is kind of what he's claiming now, why didn't he absolutely trounce the Chinese, take massive measures because he knows for certain that a super dangerous virus is coming out of China. So why did he constantly, A, deny that the virus existed and then botch every single thing that could have, not every single thing, but many of the majority of things that could have been done to attack this virus that he knew was created by the Chinese? It's a weapon. Like, I don't get it. The logic of this makes no sense to me. And, um, David Frum put it another way, which is that he said, uh, the question I keep returning to is how could you, A, blame China, B, deny the virus, and C, malign the vaccines? It's like saying, this is a new Pearl Harbor. All the Japanese bombs missed. The real villain is the U.S. Navy. So I kind of share his his, um, (laughs) puzzlement at the reason chain here. Do you guys think it's a lab leak? Like in your heart? I like seriously have no idea. I uh, I ascribe to John uh, Stewart's rant on um, on Stephen Colbert's show, where it does seem that like the the rational thing would be it came from a lab leak. I mean, it came out of this place where they're fussing with this stuff behind closed doors, and you're going to say, no, it wasn't the guys doing this dangerous stuff behind closed doors when we know there are lots of leaks in life, but it came from an animal just down the street. I mean, I realize I'm I'm bastardizing And a few scientists at the lab got sick. We don't really know what they were sick with. And the director of the lab won't release any records to clarify the question. What do you think, David? Oh, for sure. For sure. And the fact that that they're now pretty certain that the Wuhan, the outbreak that was at the market was not the first evidence of the disease, that that there had been either through these scientists, but even just the, the whatever the DNA history or the RNA history of the virus suggests that it had existed before that is this, to me, those are all good indicators. I've been a lab leak truther for, for 
a long time. Um, so <laughs> revealing your true the, colors. Glad to now see the Department of Energy. Come out. <laughs> I'm glad to see the Department of Energy is finally <laughs> on our side. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. We are now joined by the most special guest we have ever had. Certainly my all-time favorite guest, my brother, John Plotz. John is an English professor at Brandeis University where he studies all kinds of fun topics. His next book is on Ursula Le Guin. He also hosts a great podcast about books called Recall This Book that you should listen to. We invited John on because all of us read Nathan Heller's long article in The New Yorker, The End of the English Major, about the rapid drop in the number of students majoring in humanities in colleges across the U.S. Uh, Heller's article, which is very long, um, that is a, it is a very long, you have to be an English major just to finish it, but it makes a bunch of points that I will very quickly try to summarize. First of all, Humanities majors are declining virtually everywhere while STEM and STEM-affiliated majors are growing quickly. There has been a ton of investment in STEM and policy and business-related departments, whereas humanities departments have been relatively starved over the past, like, 50 years, more or less. Humanities departments are now trying and have been trying various ways to recast themselves as useful emphasizing things like valuable writing skills, attaching themselves to STEMI departments like history of science, and compiling lists of really successful English majors who have made lots of money. Uh, so, John, did this description of what's happening ring true to you as somebody who teaches in an English department? And, and if so, what do you think explains the decline of the English major? Okay. Well, th first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I do think that a lot of it rang true at my university. What has happened is that we've seen a shift uh, towards creative writing instead of uh, English. And I think just generally in the humanities, we've seen a lot of people who are focused on wanting to be uh, creators or content creators, I guess. So I think one thing is that the terms of what it means to study the humanities are changing a little bit. And um, for example, you mentioned history of science. I think history of science as a major has gone up in a lot of places, but it's not necessarily um, a dehumanization. I think it's more like the history of science is actually a good example of places where people want the ways of thinking that humanities brings. They just want to apply it towards uh, STEM subjects as well. Is that interest, John, in creative writing? What's your opinion of that as a person who believes in the benefit of the humanities to shape a well-rounded brain? Um, well, what's your opinion of it, John? Well, I think it could be nothing sharpens the mind better than organized thinking, which is what writing is. And so if you have a writing-heavy uh, curriculum, oh my God, I would make everybody take it because it helps sharpen your brain no matter what you're going to do in life. However, if it's just to um, build your brand and found it on the idea that all I got to do is get a keyboard in front of me and the golden river will flow from my pulsing brain, uh, then you're doomed. That's a great um, metaphor, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> then you're doomed. <laughs> 
um, then you're doomed because you're not getting into the difficult part of of writing and thinking. Yeah, great. So, so John, I totally agree with that. One thing at at Brandeis, but I think it's true of a lot of other universities, is that people who do creative writing do end up taking a lot of the analytic classes, the classes on sort of my side of the aisle. So I think um, the idea is not, you know, nothing in, everything out. It's more that you understand what you're going to output by you know, spending some time immersing yourself in other people's writings. But I wanted to connect that to another thing I think that might explain what happen- is happening with a number of humanities majors, which is that for better and for worse, writing is getting spread out over the whole university. So writing instruction is done in law schools, it's done in professional schools, but it's also done um, in, you know, so-called writing across the disciplines. And that has, you know, pluses and minuses. One thing is, you know, it means that not every person learning how to write reads a lot of novels or a lot of poems in order to learn how to write. But, you know, people do still get to study their discipline and the form that they're writing, that writing takes in their discipline. So I think you could think about that not so much as humanities declining as just a kind of reallocation of where the educational energy goes. Because I agree with you, John, that the writing education is probably, you know, it's sort of one of the tenets of humanities education is teaching people how to write. I definitely see that from my, you know, corner window at Yale, looking out, you know, through mostly the eyes of my husband who teaches in the history department. Do you have a and corner I, office? N- no, no, I meant like a little corner oh. of the university. She's in the C-suite. Corner office, that's such a good idea. Um, <laughs> Your gabled eyes and glass window. Yeah, yeah no, I, that was purely supposed to be a metaphor, David. It was clearly a bad <laughs> metaphor and I need to I'm back. a literalist. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. <laughs> Not a humanities major. Uh, yes, more architecture classes anyway, for you. Anyway, sorry, Emily. Bad sorry. choice of imagery on my part. Um, yeah, so think you're right. And I think mostly it's really good that the writing instruction is spread out because there's more of it, more of it than when I was at school. It's not confined. I also think there is a real appetite especially for analytics. I mean, one of the things I thought that Nathan really captured was this emphasis on statistics as the form of evidence that interests people um, and kind of trying to apply empiricism all over the place in a way that I think can be helpful, but also be a strange fit for some aspects of the humanities. The thing I do really wonder about is whether students are going to stop reading or almost stop reading novels and poetry. Um, novels because they're really long and poetry because they, I think, see there being a bar to entry that I wish there wasn't. But I also understand that feeling as someone who feels like very ill trained in poetry myself. And, you know, they're reading all kinds of other things. It's not like they're not reading, but the idea that you're going to be expected to take a kind of basic literature class, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, Chaucer. It can be Toni Morrison, like it could be perfectly contemporary, but that sort of assumption, which I think more of us had in when I was in college as a kind of liberal arts tenet and pillar, I feel like has sort of gone away. And I've watched my kids and a lot of students I know just kind of do very little of that or not do it at all. Well, if I can just speak to the long novel thing. So Emily, I totally agree with you about poetry, but I would bet that that's been true for like 150 years, that poetry is something that has to, you have to have somebody create a conversational context in which you read poems and think through them. Um, I was just doing an event last night with a physicist who was trying to get people to think about how sand operates. And so we all had to 
walk through uh, an hourglass as if we were particles of sand. But then we read a poem about sand by a contemporary poet. And, you know, that was what crystallized the experience for people. But we had to kind of do it together in order for those things to work. But the point about novels, I guess the only thing I would say, since I teach a lot of fantasy and science fiction, because like, as David said, I just, you know, wrote a book about Ursula Le Guin. And my students never have a problem committing to reading a very long fantasy novel. I mean, most of these series are, you know, in total tens of thousands of pages long. So, um, so I'm not so worried about people giving up on prose fiction. Um, but poetry, I agree, or, or theater as well. John, one thing we haven't talked about at all yet is sort of theory. I, one of the things that, that, that was difficult for me when I tried to take literature classes in college is that it felt really impenetrable. And, and it felt really unfun. A lot of the classes felt unfun, problematizing, and, and everything was being problematized and deconstructing. And I wonder how much you think, like, the trouble the humanities, and I guess English in particular, is having comes from these external forces around the people being drawn to, to pre-professional fields or, value, or, you know, lucrative fields like STEM, and how much of it is oh man, the way people have been taught these things is not really fun if you're a 19-year-old? I think it's a great question. I think that most classes set up for 19-year-olds and for undergraduates have always, have historically tried to get people into the big problems of literature, which is, you know, understanding how other minds works, the fact that my experience and your experience is not the same. And like, Emily, back to your point about data and analytics, it's not that humanities are against data and analytics, but they are focused... Um, my friend Martin Puchner recently wrote a book in which he basically said culture is not know how, but know why. So that culture is about the experiential dimension of what it means to be a person, like why my mind perceives the world differently from yours. And I think most classes have always hit on that. So I hear what you're saying about the rise of theory. And I think we could probably say the fall of theory now, too, because that isn't really the major focus of most people teaching literature nowadays. But but I don't think it's a huge part of it. I mean, I think the the rise and fall of humanities is more to do with like people adapting to, you know, where the jobs are, what their conception is of what they're going to be able to do getting out. And it and with the rise of STEM. I remember um, reading David Demby's great books. And one of the things I took, a, one of the things that stuck with me was the idea of reading literature as identity formation. That the participation in the humanities takes place at a time in your life where you're trying on all kinds of new selves. You're thinking about how to think about yourself. As you mentioned, John, you're thinking about how other people think, recognizing they are totally different. And yet also having that amazing thing and going, oh my God, I'm not alone. And that identity formation piece, I wonder what you think about that with respect to this thesis that the humanities are waning. As you were saying identity formation, I was also thinking about something like, uh, you know, anti-identity formation, because I do think that the part of the challenge of the humanities is about displacement and distance, like seeing that there's other worlds out there. So even when I teach science fiction, sometimes what I think, when well, I'm, I'm teaching these future experiments, but when I teach, you know, when people are teaching about Chaucer, or they're teaching about Shakespeare, or they're teaching about, you know, the classics, they're teaching about 
past experiments, you know, the way that the world has always changed and what's available to my brain is not the same as what's available to your brain. So, so yes, identity formation, I guess, but identity formation inside a culture where the definition of culture is, you know, it's always diverse. We're always appropriating or borrowing from one another. And what we borrow is not exactly the same thing as what the person is lending. And, and I think that, you know, that you can see that in science as well. And you can for sure see it in history of science. But the nice thing about humanities is that it, it really drills down on that question, the question of why, you know, why the meaning of something to me is not the same as it is to you, even if the evidence is the same. So the actual world is the same, but my knowledge of it and your knowledge of it are different. And how do we understand that difference? Can we talk just for another minute about the investment the university is making in STEM versus humanities and how you feel about that? I mean, you could argue that it's appropriate, like the schools are taking their money where the market is, where the students are. It's consumer-driven, maybe it will have benefits out in the world. Or you can argue that there's something really um, counterproductive about it and the students are getting a message that this is the only thing that matters, which, and this was in Nathan's piece and I think is important, that message is very much reinforced by the recruiters who come on campus because the easy jobs, the people who show up to scoop them up are the consulting firms and the the investment banks. Like, And it creates this dynamic in which if you want to be certain about your future, you move in that direction. And then the school is telling you with all the fancy new buildings that that's a great path for you to take. Yeah. So I'm sure that David on this show has said, like, as the child of a scientist, like a thousand times, but, you know, I think partly as a child of a scientist, I'm not going to stand up and say, I think STEM is bad. I mean, I love most of my closest friends at Brandeis are in the neuroscience and biology departments, and they have shiny new buildings. And I get why they have shiny new buildings. The real thing that you would hear, like you would hear it at UC Berkeley, which is UC Berkeley is one of these places where humanities majors are on the rise. Everyone looks at how wonderful they are. The graduate students are on and have been on strike there because of adjunctification. So it's one thing to say, oh, gee, they hire more people than us. That that's not a problem. But what is really a problem is hiring of adjuncts and hiring to non-tenure track or dead-end jobs. And that's what our graduate students face. And that's that part really worries me. And I don't actually think that the um, rational calculation argument that you floated, Emily, of like, well, that's where the money is. I don't think it can possibly be worth it for them to asset strip the humanities as much as they have been so that the number, the percentage of people taught by adjuncts who, again, can be really smart, but they're struggling because they're teaching six classes in a semester. They're, you know, living out of their car or their office is their car. You know, the percentage of people who are getting taught in classes like that is going way up. And that cannot be good, you know, and that the price will be paid down the road. It's just not visible on the bottom line. Can I ask you guys a question, all of us a question, because we're roughly the same age and we all went to college at the same time. I feel that the great neglect that was done to me, the abuse that was done to me in college was that I was not compelled to learn science and math at a high level. And that you at could, a high level? You wanted to moder- learn it at a high level? At a higher level that than I learned. And that the kind of science and math that you're required to take at at uh, at Harvard, where I went, was it was it was pretty pathetic. There wasn't the kind of same rigor around science and math for people who weren't as interested in it as there as there could have been and 
I feel like I, my generation, I think I actually probably had someone forced me to take a really hard chem class. I might have ended up as a chemist in a way that I didn't because I was like took, you know, I took science for jocks classes because that was it was so easy to do it. Football physics. I wonder if it, it, it like we that we just missed that that what was happening when we were there was that there was a real neglect of one side of this equation and which has now been redressed. My big regrets in college were that I didn't take statistics, economics, history of music or history of art. So those are big things not to have taken. I don't know why I was like fooling around with so many women in the Bible classes without getting any of that under my belt. But the idea of a high level math class or being (laughs) required to take chemistry, I mean, I would have been roadkill in those classes. So I have no regrets about that. I think, David, you when you say redress, what I heard from you, what I liked, what I heard from you, and therefore what I'm going to interpret what you were saying to mean is that um, pushing you in an area that you weren't otherwise going to go in has pedagogical benefits or has learning benefits. And that would have been great for me, too. And I think that's um, and UVA had um, requirements. But as you say, um, I took physics that was had lots of athletes in it. And I took an environmental sciences class, which I I really liked both of them. But they didn't um, push me. I think in retrospect, I wish I had taken more economics and more statistics in terms of being useful out in the world. But I think the cross pollination is more important. So if you're so everybody going into STEM isn't good either. They should be forced to take a, you know, Faulkner survey or some other thing, because what I always liked about Michelle Obama's thing with her kids was she said, you you've got to play one sport that you're bad at. Because it teaches you how to learn something from scratch and also how to suffer through things that are difficult. Now, most college students would say, I got enough difficulty in my regular life. But um, I like your sentiment. I just uh, uh, and I guess I I, I would I would say it goes across whatever your passions are. One of the strengths of liberal arts education in the United States that is different from how most European universities are set up is that we delay choosing specializations. And one of the things that's happened lately is that people have been pushed to specialize early on. And if you can stumble on that astrophysics class or that anthropology class, like all these things you don't take in high school, if you get a chance to stumble on that um, major, that's, you know, I think that's when a better version of the American education takes place. So, uh, you know, just delay as long as you can, I think. John Plotz is a professor at Brandeis University of English. He's also my brother. He is shorter, but smarter and kinder. <laughs> at least one of those things is true. I have better skin. It, that, that is definitely true. Let's go to cocktail chatter. If you are my brother, John Plotz. Oh, why didn't so we make him stay? That was a party. really... Because we should have made him stay. He had something to do, but he's such a good... He's like an amazing cocktail party guest, my brother. Um, but we're going to have to make do with us. So... Emily, I've been following with great interest this discussion about um, the potential connection between smartphones and rising depression among teenagers, especially teenage girls and especially liberal teenage girls. So I have read good pieces on this by Michelle Goldberg and Ross Dowthit and Matt Iglesias in the last week or so. And if you're interested in this subject, I really recommend all three of them. Um, You know, this question of we can't this is all correlation not like hard proof of causality but there have been some studies of social media that suggest greater unhappiness with more time spent on sites like Facebook and Instagram 
it just seems like, especially for girls, this whole idea of curating your image and putting so much stock in that and having to see yourself through the views, the eyes of other people, uh, just seems to really trouble more and more people. Um, it kind of has an intuitive heft to it, in my view. And and then, you know, Matt Iglesias in particular was addressing this issue of um, kind of depressive politics on the left, a kind of fatalism among progressives about how terrible the world is and it will never get better. And he was just pointing out that, like, social movements don't succeed under those terms, that you have to have a kind of optimism about the potential for change in order to motivate and mobilize people. And that even if it's super unrealistic, you have to hang on to that and and that um, that is going missing in some progressive causes and circles right now. So I recommend all three of those pieces um, as I continue to think through this issue for teenagers who really are suffering in terms of loneliness and anxiety and other mental health issues right now. Cosign. John, what's your chatter? Totally. Cosign. In fact, one of the things that I was thinking about this week, dictionary.com put put out some new words and um, modified some old definitions. And one of the new definite one of the new definitions they have is rage farming. This is adjacent to this, which is in which is the political instinct to basically intentionally provoke rage farming is provoking opponents, but I think there's obviously a doom, a doom version of this um, in social media that's that's connected to a lot of the negative feelings created by social media that um, sort of like if you're not staring all day long at the awfulness, um, you're not committed. My uh, chatter is um, is about a piece that I read in the Washington Post uh, called, and the headline is Tech's Hottest New Job, AI Whisperer, No Coding Required. And it's, it's a story by Drew Harwell, and it's about prompt em- engineers who are, um, their skill is that they get um, artificial intelligence systems to do what they want. Um, you know, AI is obviously very balky where there's been lots of fun with Bing's, um, effort at AI and, and these, um, experiments that have gone terribly wrong. Um, and, uh, the AI whisperer exists, it seems to me in this fascinating place, which is between human communication and machine communication and understands kind of the bridges of both, or sorry, the bridge to get between both, um, uh, and I just, I loved both the job uh, and the piece and also what it says about all kinds of funky new uh, jobs that are going to exist in our artificial intelligence world, which is is frightening, but doesn't necessarily need to be entirely frightening. My chatter is about a great New Yorker article by Ben Taub, and it's a, called How the Biggest Fraud in German History Unraveled. It's about Wirecard, uh, which... I didn't know much about. It. I remember hearing about Wirecard. I didn't know what it was. Wirecard was a a a um, payment processing company uh, that collapsed several years ago in a mega fraud. And this story by Taub is incredible. It's about creepy Russians, as if there is any other kind these days. Uh, mercenaries, porn, online gambling, some unbelievably shady transactions in the Philippines a fearless British reporter, incredibly negligent German regulators, coke-addled short sellers. It's great. Really recommend you read it. Also, Taub himself is fascinating. He seems to have funded his own journalism career by winning money on the TV show The Voice and then becoming a journalist uh, with the money he won on The Voice. That's, that is my read of his Wikipedia page. So uh, I recommend that story. Also, had an idea, just want to GabFest listeners and John and Emily, 
got an idea for a movie. I'm not saying I'm giving this away because if so, anyone makes this movie, um, I feel like I should get some of it. <laughs> How are you going to prevent people from stealing it it's, now? Go, go, go. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I'm claiming the IP uh-huh. by just stating on the show. It's Home Alone. It is Home Alone, the movie Home Alone, remade with a dog in the role of Macaulay Culkin. My like dog. Really smart She's dog. She's not really smart. She's your cute. dog. Your dog. Um, it's got to be a cute dog. I was thinking my girlfriend's dog is super, a super cute beagle, and he would be so cute as in that role. Uh, so anyone wants to go ahead and make that, go ahead. Just give me like, I don't know, 1% of gross <laughs> is fine. I thought, I thought like every other cartoon movie is basically about the animals being left to their own sure. devices once the people leave. Yeah, but is it, have they made Home Alone? Uh, listeners, you sent us excellent chatters this week. Um, please tweet them to us at SlateGabFest or email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. Even better, emailing them. And our listener chatter this week comes from Arthur Baroff. My name is Arthur. I'm a principal at the Met High School, and I'm also a coach of a high school ethics bowl team that's a part of the National High School Ethics Bowl out of the Parr Center for Ethics at UNC Chapel Hill, which is a competition that's both at the high school and the college level. So each year, the um, ethics bowl people release 15 cases, and they range in issues from AI and animal rights to the war in Ukraine to cancel culture, the drinking age parental rights in schools, um, all of these big topics. And students have to debate them, but it's not quite a debate. Instead of the students trying to prove themselves right and the other team wrong, the team wins by being the best collaborator with the other team to go deeper and develop a shared understanding of a really tricky ethical case study. So through the competition, my students analyze real life scenarios. They interrogate their own moral compass, they challenge each other respectfully, and they gain a deeper understanding of the world's moral complexity. Most importantly, they walk away more ethically minded community members thinking about the ethical dimension of their lives. My daughter did that for a while. It was great. Seems really, really cool. I feel like it's actually the analog to what we do on the GabFest. If you think of competitive debate as being like shout shows, and we're more like that. So that was that's my read on it. I like it. I like your read. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio of Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and send us chatter, your chatter there, or by emailing us at gabfestatslate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Washington, D.C., my hometown, erupted in scandal this week as the right-wing media hate machine known as the Washington Post revealed the latest Dodder and Joe Biden scandal when he and First Lady Jill Biden went on a date to Red Hen a D.C. restaurant frequented by the woke media, they ordered the same thing. Both of them ordered the rigatoni as an entree. Did you hear that, America? They ordered the same entree. And now the same liberal cucks who covered up the Hunter Biden laptop story have tried to drown out Red Hengate. Uh, Incidentally, no surprise that Biden would be eating at a restaurant named Red Hen since he is also a commie chicken. But Emily, are you shocked enraged or just quietly disappointed that the Bidens ordered the same entree? I'm thinking 
of making a rigorous defense of this practice, although I'm stumbling on the pasta part. So, well, exactly. Right? Like, what? Why not? Why can't you order pasta? Because I feel like... <laughs> Well, maybe John is going to back Can me I, up here. You well, go, let me play John. My no- explain why the pasta aspect of this is befuddling. Let me ask my typical stupid question, which is: is what is 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 what we are debating and what's at issue the fact that they both ordered rigatoni, or that they both ordered the same thing? In other words, if they both ordered some specialité of the house that is made from you know the most beautifully handcrafted pillows of. Uh, ancient flour filled with the sweetest meats of of, uh, of of the planet. Okay. But if it's rigatoni, doesn't that mean it can only be so good and therefore a double sharing is a problem itself? People say the rigatoni at Red Hen is fabulous. And I, I love rigatoni, so I can imagine that. But I'm just trying to so define I, our question here. Is it the rigatoni or the fact that they shared? No, it's the, it's the fact they didn't... Sh- that they got the same yeah. thing. I'm, the same. I'm more bothered by the rigatoni, not rigatoni in particular. I'm going to go back to my pasta point, which you can knock down. Pasta is a dish where you can have some bites of it and then share it. It's super filling. Like, I've never had a moment where I coveted the rest of my pasta and wouldn't hand it over to whoever I was having dinner with. David, you can have dinner with me all the time and have the rest of my pasta since you look so shocked. So I found that part of it. Whereas, like, yes, if they had each ordered some super fancy thing that was like teeny bites, then I would be like, sure. I'm with David on the hoovering of the pasta. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 